Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. For this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Delavalle, Professor of Dermatology and Professor of Public Health, all the way from Aurora, Colorado, specifically at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, which, by the way, is one of the top medical schools in America. Dr. Delavalle serves as head of the dermatology group at the Veterans Affairs Hospital, as well as practicing at the University of Colorado Hospital. Today, we'll be discussing Robert's illustrious career in dermatology, his clinical research, and interest in various dermatologic conditions. Robert studied at UCLA in Los Angeles, obtaining his bachelor's and master's in philosophy, then a PhD from the University of Chicago in molecular genetics and cell biology, and completed his medical school and internship at the same institution. And then the young man went west to the University of Colorado in Denver, where he completed his dermatology residency and research fellowship. Dr. Delavalle is an incredibly active chap with multiple publications from his research interests. He's active in professional medical societies, has been honored for his contributions, including receiving the prestigious Melanoma Research Foundation Melanoma Prevention Award in 2020, and we're going to be talking about that sort of activity. He grew up in Central California, enjoys skiing, hiking, traveling, and is an avid gardener currently rewilding his back lawn, sort of like an English-style garden, methinks. We're very privileged to have Robert here with us today, and I look forward to learning more about the fascinating work he's doing in the field of dermatology, which incidentally was my worst subject at medical school. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Robert Delavalle. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Flattery will get you everywhere. You got that right. So (laughs) am I right? Is rewilding just sort of like letting it go back to nature? It is. I've stopped mowing it, and I've allowed um, a lot of the bordering plants to reseed in the lawn. So I have some very large amaranth that are uh, giving a Dr. Seuss-like look to my backyard. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to, I shan't mention the name, it's quite a prominent British person who has a very, very typical English garden. And I said how I loved that style and said, my dear chap, you have to understand this isn't born of, of any premise. It's just simply that we're very lazy. <laughs> so rather the French look, which is all sort of very highly cultivated. So let's start with your origin story, Robert. Um, I'm always fascinated how someone gets to where they are. As I said, you grew up in central California. What, what, what took you into medicine, the, the places you studied, your choice of dermatology and the specific areas you focused on? And, and who or what inspired you? Well, I'll have to start with how my family ended up in Central California. Uh, around the 1900s, my ancestors uh, were starving in Italy, and they immigrated with a lot of other people from Italy at that time to Central California, where they grew grapes. So I grew up on a vineyard in Central California in a very hot and arid part of the state that is the fruit basket of the U.S. uh, As a teenager, I couldn't wait to leave the rural area for the big city. Upon graduating high school, I applied to the University of California system, which is one of the excellent university systems in the U.S. 
and I was accepted to UCLA. Uh, Los Angeles was a big enough city for me, and I enjoyed my time there in a special program they had and still have, which is called College Honors. And it's a smaller uh, study group within the large 30,000 population of UCLA, and uh, you get lots of extra attention. So I, I really thrived in that environment. And I enjoyed philosophy at that time in my life, studying it for a, an MA and a BA degree. And I knew that I would not be uh, reading Barclay, Hume, and Locke at later points in my life. So I really enjoyed uh, reading those difficult passages early on when my brain was sharper and could uh, get through all of it. I, I always felt like I would be a scientist, and uh, I was attracted to the physician scientist program at the University of Chicago. Uh, I applied to that after graduating from UCLA and enjoyed uh, studying medicine with the illustrious faculty at the University of Chicago, and I found that the dermatologists were the happiest doctors in the hospital. So that uh, naturally attracted me to the specialty. I was uh, completing a MD-PhD program, so I studied molecular genetics with Susan Lindquist, and we were doing gene expression studies for one of the proteins which is expressed during stress in Drosophila, and it was amplified to help with heat tolerance in that fruit fly by Michael Velte. Some of those studies also in Drosophila at the time showed some uh, gene expression patterns specific to skin cancer, namely sonic hedgehog expression in basal cell carcinoma. So I knew that my genetic research could be applied in dermatology. And that attracted me to uh, apply in dermatology uh, between the doctors recommending it and being happy in that specialty and my being able to apply my PhD skills in the specialty uh, that led me to apply in dermatology and match in Colorado. And that's what brought me to Colorado in 1997 uh, where I've stayed and done lots of research ever since, as I'm sure we'll go into a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I was, just before we got on, I was saying I was recently in Aspen, have enjoyed Colorado immensely. For the listeners who have not been, you know, normally folks from outside the United States, they go to New York and Los Angeles or maybe Disneyland, go to Colorado. It is absolutely geographically splendid, wonderful way of life. And yeah, it's a, a lot to commend it. By the way, I just want to fact check with you because you, you studied philosophy. I was just in Edinburgh and there's a statue of Hume uh, outside the University of Edinburgh and his, I think it's his right foot is advanced and apparently people like to go there and kiss his big toe for good luck. Wasn't he the chap who was sort of uh, an atheist and opposed to, to ritual, uh, lucky beliefs and all that. It just struck me as rather ironic, or have I mixed my philosophers up? No, I'm sh there aren't too many British empiricist philosophers who think kindly of superstitious practices. So I think you're right on there, Jonathan. Well, it, it just amused me to see this brightly glowing brass toe and learning the background to it. So moving from superstition to actually... Uh, about as far from that as you can get, which is Cochrane. 
and I've seen that you've been very heavily involved in that. I know there's a lot of healthcare practitioners, and I'm sure many people who aren't in the profession who have no idea what the Cochrane um, entity is, what a Cochrane review is. Can you just do a sort of Cochrane 101 for our audience? Sure. So Cochrane is perhaps the most important evidence-based healthcare organization you may not have heard of before. So it's a great opportunity to promulgate the, uh, the great work that the organization has been doing for about 30 years now. The Cochrane's about to celebrate its 30th anniversary. It was started by uh, Sir Ian Chalmers at Oxford in 1993 when he charged that everyone do what Archie Cochrane, a noted Welsh physician, had advocated many years before, and that's to use evidence, not antidote or personal experience, to guide medical practices. One way of doing that is to summarize all of the high-quality randomized controlled trials that are in the literature for any particular ailment. So we could take, for example, warts. The treatment for a wart in dermatology can be quite varied, and that is because no particular treatment works tremendously well. But when all of the randomized controlled trials of high quality are summarized across the literature, one treatment is favored more than others, and that is a acid plaster tape that is applied for uh, the wart. From summarizing the literature, we can then go on and make that recommendation of a salicylic acid plaster tape for warts as being the most effective based on our current knowledge. So Cochrane is that type of effort for all of medicine. So it could be what type of pacemaker works best for you, what type of medication might prevent dementia. Uh, the number of questions is endless. And the organization has become quite active with the COVID pandemic. Uh, there were a lot of medications that were promoted as being helpful for COVID, which in fact were not in Cochrane did much of the uh, systematic reviews of the literature to show what does and doesn't work for COVID, and, and they do it for many other things. So it's one of the, the really noble and worthy causes in medicine. I, I got involved at Cochrane because many years ago, about 20 now, I was interested in whether or not cardiac medications that lower cholesterol affect melanoma risk. So I approached a lot of the cardiac trialists who had looked at cholesterol-lowering medications, and some of whom had reported lower melanoma incidences or skin cancer incidences in some of the people taking the medication versus those not taking the medication in clinical trials. I was not successful in getting a lot of feedback and information from the trialists that had not published skin cancer rates. And without broader evidence, I was not able to make any conclusions as to whether or not those medications like statins and fibrates were in fact affecting skin cancer rates. And that's when I appealed to the director of Cochrane Skin, that was Hal Williams, and he advised us to 
use the Cochrane name with the cardiac trialists and that they might be more inclined to give us their information. And that's what it actually occurred after we employed Cochrane's skin and its rigorous methods for synthesizing uh, multiple studies, we were able to get more of the cardiac trialists to share their data with us, and we were able to find that, in fact, uh, using statins was not a clear indication for lower skin cancer in the incidence when all of the evidence was there the effect of the few that had published was diluted out and uh, we didn't see a dramatic effect of using statins on melanoma. It's fascinating. You know, I was chatting with someone just today about the misinformation or disinformation rather that the general public consumes and that I think that we as physicians could do a better job making sure they understood that we're not imperious. We're certainly not in the pay of the pharmaceutical industry we believe and are guided by evidence that is gathered in a in a rigorous manner by people who go into it with a degree of healthy cynicism or skepticism rather and that if people understood things like the Cochrane with more clarity then perhaps these sort of crazy situations like vaccine hesitancy wouldn't occur so staying on the basis of dissemination of information you you recently took over as as editor in chief at uh, at a journal and you surveyed article types in the literature. During the pandemic, we saw the, the phenomenon of pre-publication. The articles got published before they'd gone through peer review so that we had more rapid promulgation of data. And prior to that, pressure from the so-called pharma scolds, people who are against doctors collaborating with industry, to remove pharmaceutical advertisements from journals, which frankly makes them affordable, what do you think the future holds for traditional journals and how do we ensure that we promulgate good scientific data in a responsible manner, but not so much so that you have to be a, a gazillionaire to be able to stay up to date? Well, Jonathan, you ask a very good question. Being involved in peer review and publications for many years now, it has been very interesting to see how open access has changed biomedical publication. Uh, we now have many journals offering open access to anyone as opposed to a subscription model, but the cost is significant for the authors, oftentimes a authorship fee of two or $3,000 per patient per paper is not unheard of. That's, of course, going to affect who can publish and what gets published. I don't think any uh, journal is resting on its laurels right now. I think all journals are looking at the disruption that open access is causing to biomedical publication. It's yet to be seen where we're going to go <laughs> as things roll out. One thing that's certain is that uh, we will have change. Uh, change is the one certainty in this arena. Yeah. I mean, even things like getting negative data published of, of all the articles I've published, the one I'm proudest of was a technique. It was a technical paper describing a surgical technique and novel, clever. The day that I was uh, revising the galley proofs, I got a phone call from the emergency room that my patient was back in with a recurrence of the problem that I'd just operated on him for. And I then had the quandary of what I do with the paper. Do I withdraw it? Do I just sign it off and send it? Well, that would have been dishonest. 
So I actually wrote a, an addendum paragraph and said, by the way, and I just wrote down exactly what had happened, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant, as a way of saying, this is negative, do not do this. I did this and it didn't have a good outcome. Mind you, it may be that I, you know, there could be other reasons, but negative data doesn't get published. I think a lot of the large databases and observational trials will eventually help us determine what are the best treatments for diseases as well. The big data applied to medical hospitals and national healthcare systems will fulfill the promise of, of telling us what works best. So uh, you mentioned statins a little earlier. I'm fascinated by some of the work coming out on Parkinson's disease, links to melanoma, vagotomy, and so on. A couple of years ago, you wrote an article called A Review of the Current Evidence Connecting Seborrheic Dermatitis and Parkinson's Disease and the Potential Role of Oral Cannabinoids. There's a few things to unpack there. Can you do so in a sort of concise manner, bearing in mind that most of us are not dermatologists? Well, being from Colorado, the study of cannabinoids in medicine and their widespread use by the population is a bit of the head of the curve of most of the other places in the U.S. We're one of the first places to allow recreational use of uh, marijuana and cannabinoids. And our Department of Public Health here in Colorado has been interested in the use of these medications by the population, even though the federal government maintains that they are not allowed federally. So it leads to some difficulty in studying them. The Department of Public Health funded a trial by one of our neurologists here at the University of Colorado, Maureen Leahy to look at oral CBD for the treatment of Parkinson's mobility. And Parkinson's is an interesting ailment in neurology in that about half of the people with Parkinson's have a dermatologic problem, which is essentially dandruff on the face or seborrheic dermatitis. So we partnered with Dr. Leahy to add a secondary aim to her clinical trial to look at whether or not seborrheic dermatitis was affected by the CBD. So that allowed us to not have to create a separate trial. We could utilize her patients and just examine them more carefully from the first trial. And that uh, allowed us to look at this. And I, unfortunately, the study is still blinded and I can't tell you whether or not it's working, but I thought it was an interesting application of cannabinoids for germ diseases. There are a lot of cannabinoids being compounded in topicals for different skin diseases, but this was an oral preparation and we're eagerly anticipating discovering if it does help Parkinson's patients with seborrheic dermatitis. Given the ready access to, um, to the weed in uh, Colorado, where else may cannabinoids play a role in your specialty? And my, my, my slightly sneering commentary is not meant to be uh, pejorative, I'm actually a big believer in it personally for uh, the amelioration of pain and nausea in cancer for sure. And, you know, it, it has found other utility and there's a lot of interesting work being done. So what about in your specialty? What, what, what about cannabinoids for dermatology? 
Topically, you don't absorb very much through the skin, so it's not going to make you high, but it, a lot of cannabinoids have anti-inflammatory effects. So for any inflammatory skin disease like eczema or psoriasis, there's a potential for a topical cannabinoid to help. So years ago in Australia, I came across a campaign being run there to reduce the incidence of skin cancer. Slip, slap, slop, slide. Slip on a shirt, slap on a hat, slop on some sunscreen and... Um, slide on some shades because Queensland in the northeast of Australia had a massive incidence given it's rather sunny. You've written a lot about this and you've done some very creative stuff. Looked at hashtags on Instagram, uh, TikTok reels and so on. Analyzed education via tattoo parlors. Please wax lyrical on prevention of skin cancer. And again, I'm really impressed at your all-encompassing approach because us doctors are not usually social media savvy. Well, I'm not anyway. So over to you. Well, that's one of the things that led me to Jamir Dermatology and becoming the editor-in-chief of that new journal is its interest in social media and also its interest in epidemiology and dermatology. I've been a big advocate of utilizing innovative technology for engaging the public in discovering how much sun damage they have. And I believe the best tool we have right now is a camera that shows a person their hidden UV damage, either by using something called UV photography or cross-polarized light photography that can show these drastically spotted faces on a person if they have hidden UV damage uh, quite rapidly in public setting, if they're willing to take the picture and look at it. It really motivates people to protect themselves from the sun much better, to use sunscreen, and to take the environmental carcinogen of UV light much more seriously. Here in Colorado, we have at least 300 days of sunshine a year, and we are at higher elevation than the rest of the United States. So we have higher incidence of skin cancer and it's important to utilize whatever means we can to raise people's awareness to prevent sun damage to their skin and future wrinkles and skin cancers. One of the more innovative studies I've been involved in is a sun protection education program delivered by tattoo artists to their clients. It turns out that tattoo artists, like dermatologists, want us to have very healthy skin. It's their canvas and it's also where they put their artwork. And it turns out that UV light damages the canvas and damages the artwork. So tattoo artists are very interested in having their clients protect their skin from the sun. So this led to a randomized controlled trial across our nation funded by the National Cancer Institute and done in collaboration with Klein Bundle, medical education company here in Colorado, to test skin cancer education delivered by tattoo artists to their clients to see if it changes their behavior. And we're currently uh, analyzing that data. We were a little sidetracked by the COVID pandemic, which actually was pretty devastating to the tattoo artists across the nation by decreasing their, their business. But uh, for those of, of them that stayed in business and continued to participate with our program, we're, we're determining how effective the education was and in what ways. One of the conversations I have, you know, I fly airplanes for um, my avocation and I talk to a lot of pilots about health. And one of the things I go on about is 
skin protection. Pilots are unfortunately mostly men um, and men do not take care of themselves. Women apply makeup and most makeup seemingly has some sun protection factor. And, you know, I tell men, how often do you put on sunscreen? When I go on holiday, they say, when I go on vacation, when I go skiing. Well, what about every day? I think, you know, we do need to do a lot more. So kudos to you for, for, for that. Just a quick question. Are we seeing more skin cancers and is climate change to blame? Well, as we have more sun exposure throughout our lifetimes, more beach vacations, more sunburns, more exposed skin, we will have more skin cancer. I can't say whether or not climate change is having a big impact on that, but social norms, if you look at 100 years ago, how often people went out and got sunburned or suntanned versus now, there's been a big change in social norms as to how often we expose ourselves to the sun. That, I think, is the major contributor to increases in melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers. Complex formula. And I know that this matters to you, and I saw how much volunteer work you do in this area, such as work with the Colorado Melanoma Foundation Sunbus Screening Dermatologists. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so this is a bus that a lot like the mobile mammogram programs in the U.S. This is a unique program that has a couple of exam rooms on a bus and specialized photography to highlight UV damage that goes to different communities and recruits local dermatologists to provide free skin cancer screenings. So it's a great community outreach project led by Tamara Terzian, Professor Terzian, and Professor Neil Box from our institution. So it's great to take take medicine on the road. If patients won't come to you, you go to the patients, which is wonderful. So uh, switching topics, the pandemic accelerated the adoption of telemedicine, virtual consults, and the like. Dermatologists were actually at the head of this curve long before Uh, COVID-19. And I know you've been talking about this. One recent article was entitled Improving Dermatology Access by Direct-to-Patient Teledermatology and Computer-Assisted Diagnosis. And also you wrote about organizing conferences during COVID. Where are we now and what does the future hold? Because access to to medical resources is key. And if, if a lot of this stuff could be done virtually, medical efficiencies could be improved. AI could play a role, right? So I've been practicing dermatology in the VA healthcare system, which is the largest healthcare system in the U.S. for about 20 years now. And the pandemic was a real eye-opener as to how much we can do virtually with teledermatology. We currently do about Six, about 60% of our clinics in the VA have access to teledermatology and do it frequently. And the goal in the coming years is to increase that to 95%. So I think this is pretty common and uniform across the whole healthcare enterprise in the U.S. is to increase access to specialties, especially a very visual specialty like dermatology via increased access to teledermatology. Part of the barriers are um, the payment for those services and whether or not they can be adequately funded. But I think COVID definitely sped up virtual access and teledermatology. 
Yeah, I think we are going to see more of it. I, a lot of my colleagues are telling me that I'm hearing more positives than negatives uh, about it. So uh, again, switching subjects. God, there's so many things I'd love to ask you about. Actually, there was a dermatology colleague who told me why they loved it. And they said, I get to see pathology. You get to guess at it because the skin is, you know, I used to love those things coming up with 30 causes of finger clubbing or you know, causes of erythema nodosum. I love all that stuff. So I got, I got last year, the, um, was lucky enough to visit a little island called Spinalonga off the east coast of Crete that was, um, I think, one of the world's last leprosy colonies back in the day. And I've, no, I've noticed that on your CV, you've written about this disease. What's the frequency of leprosy and has global travel made it more common and, you know, our doctor's going to have to learn about leprosy, just as we're seeing with, with COVID and most recently monkeypox. What, 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 do you, what can you tell us about that? Yes. Well, luckily, leprosy is not very contagious compared to many other diseases. So I hopefully uh, don't look forward to seeing it spread around the globe the way we have to worry about monkeypox and other ailments. I can't tell you the incidence of leprosy off the top of my head. I, I often utilize the internet for that. And my leprosy investigations were really spurred by having a Brazilian dermatologist working with me, Mayra Maimone. And I really have to credit her with stimulating interest in leprosy in our lab. And it was, I think, the most fascinating to invite a patient with leprosy to speak at our American Academy of Dermatology as part of our Cochrane Evidence-Based Symposium. I hadn't heard such an eloquent uh, spokesman for the disease before that. Uh, it really highlighted the importance of getting more patients with every ailment involved with medical practice and getting their viewpoints. So um, your research is focused on epidemiology, public health, evidence-based dermatology, and you've, you've put an emphasis on training the next generation of researchers in these areas and increasing workforce diversity. Can, can you discuss that area of your work? Well, re research has shown that dermatology is one of the least diverse areas in medicine in the U.S., and that is because it's been such a highly desirable uh, specialty. We think that biases have promoted picking uh, people who traditionally do well in medicine and not looking for diverse candidates. So we're making an intentional field-wide effort in dermatology to increase our skin of color representation in our textbooks, and as well our skin of color dermatologists. So I, I see a correction happening. I've been involved in studies of the internet and social media and seeing how skin of color issues are portrayed in those areas. And it's really uh, opened my eyes to how we can always learn to be more open-minded and diverse in all of our enterprises if we set about to do that. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but I had one of your colleagues on the podcast a while back who I've been working on a project with, Dr. Pearl Grimes um, from Los Angeles. You know Pearl? I have worked on up-to-date chapters with Pearl. She is a force of nature. <laughs> she is. 
Um, she's also she's just one of the sweetest human beings I've met, and also an incredibly knowledgeable doctor. So, if you had three wishes to advance global healthcare, what would you wish for? I would wish for more evidence-based medicine guiding what we do across the globe in terms of treatment of not only skin disease but all diseases. I would wish for more diversity in our workforce and more open-mindedness among our medical practitioners. Hooray to that. I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast. And I'd like to thank Professor Robert Delavalle for sharing his thoughts and wisdom with us, and frankly, all he's doing to improve patient care. Robert, it's been wonderful speaking with you. It's been my pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So folks, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues and Make a positive comment wherever you get your podcasts. And please join us next week when I'll be back with another episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, this is me, your host, Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>